0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, welcome to the h a podcast where we go to outer space and then talk about what a deeply unhealthy place that it is. Not uh, Not recommended. 0 out of 10 on TripAdvisor. It's, uh, it's full of moon plague, and we're going to talk about moon plague. But before we talk about moon plague, hi, I'm Mia Mulder.
0: Hi, I'm Roluca Mundano.
1: And today, as the name suggests, we're going to talk about space medicine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a fun area of medical history that also involves a surprising amount of Nazis.
0: <laughs> I feel like a lot of our topics surprisingly involve a lot of Nazis. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at this point. I feel
1: like I mentioned this, like behind the scenes, mm-hmm. like off off radio, off camera, off mic, off mic. Uh, that in history, there's a lot of fields that are very nuanced, very diverse, uh, very like very, very holistic view on the world. And then around like 1930, everything just becomes mm-hmm. about the Nazis, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. for a f- for a few years. And then progressively, it becomes less and less Nazis. Unfortunately, history yeah. sucks.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm getting a little bit tired of, of encountering Nazis in every episode. I'm gonna be honest with you.
1: But before we get into talking about a surprising amount of Nazis, we're going to thank our patrons. Mm-hmm.
0: This episode is dedicated to Rachel May, who is a very a very good patron of ours, and who we um, mo- most humbly thank. Most humbly. <laughs> We <laughs> bow before you, <laughs> for continuing to support us and for being a very nice and wholesome patron and uh, Twitter mm. follower,
1: an active like, community an, member,
0: an active community member. Exactly. We stand. We stand. Thank you, Rachel May, for for being our patron, and also thank you to all of our patrons for helping us keep the show going. Yeah,
1: and also thank you to you who's listening to this, even silent uh, support. It's also very valuable to us.
0: How um, how have you been, Mia? You you have a little news to share with us.
1: Yeah, well, I broke my arm mm-hmm. between uh, this episode and the last episode we made. Yeah. Uh, which threw a little bit of a wrench in recording, because it's kind of hard to record when your arm's in pain. And I've also got my second dose of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm fully vaccinated and broke my arm. They're not connected.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a big month for you, health-wise. I have not gotten any of my vaccines, but... I haven't broken my arm, so we're
1: on the we're similar level, yeah. basically, not not uh, zero. Yeah.
0: How did you break your arm?
1: Uh, we went skating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we went roller went, skating. Went roller skating, and I went down a bowl. Is that what's called? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, but I didn't... did go down. I went up again, and then I went back on my arm. Yeah. <laughs> and then then I spent a whole day being like, this is probably fine. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's probably fine. And then the day after, still hurt. Turns out I broke my arm. Yeah.
0: I feel kind of bad because I I roasted. The out
1: of yeah for like that whole day called me baby roasted yeah. me on twitter too yeah.
0: well you you do become um your big baby when you get sick so
1: yeah but i broke my arm
0: well you didn't know that <laughs> no but, I, and, and, but, and, no, but and, I did and and, and we, the pain you, doesn't
1: become worse when you know you broke your arm
0: but to be fair you also thought you were fine
1: yeah that's true i did i did think it was fine
0: so and i I'm, I keep roller skating I, I I didn't learn anything from from you breaking your arm. Mm, so I, I've been roller skating a lot and I think it's really fun so if um, anybody of you listening is roller skating um, that's cool <laughs> I don't know I'm not sick sick radical I just think it's it's a cool um, hobby it's it good for it's nice. good for the lights it's good for the ass muscles mm-hmm. um, and it, it, you you look fucking cool when you're doing it I must say um yeah
1: you look more cool when you don't break your arm I have to say there is a there is a walk of shame home from the skate park where you where you hold your arm (laughs) in a very like awkward position for like the rest of the day kind of hunched over you're like limping crying a little little bit bit. like that that is not very cool but that's that's the price you have to pay but you're fine now you're fine my arm still hurts but
0: you're fine
1: let's get into it let's get into the episode Alright, so today we're going to talk about space travel, a very um, hard thing to do, typically, for humans. We're not meant to be in space. There are, There's no air up there, first of all. No, there, there, well, there is gravity, but there's microgravity. It's not the same kind of gravity as mm-hmm. we're used to here on, mm-hmm. on old Terra. It's cold, a bunch of aliens, uh, maybe moon plague, and we'll get to that. So there are obviously a bunch of health issues that we have to overcome before we get into space. The most pressing being, obviously, that there's no air and it's cold. So how do we deal with that? And here is where the surprising amount of Nazis come in. Because apparently I have to mention this on every episode, that there have been a lot of Nazis that have done very inhumane things to other humans. And today I'm specifically going to talk about the physician and physiologist Hubertus Strughold, which is a very German name, first of all. Hubertus uh, Strughold, Who was a doctor working for the Luftwaffe during and before the Second World War And Hubertus may have participated in human experimentation at the concentration camp of Dachau under supervision of SS doctor Sigmund Rascher But there's no like historical conclusive evidence that he did participate or knew, know about that But it's very likely that he, that he did Everyone around him knew, and he worked at a place where he most likely knew, but there's no conclusive evidence, and there's, there might be a reason for that, which I'm going to mention in a bit. Because he did a bunch of experiments relating to exactly these health issues, in terms of pressure and temperature. In the case of pressure, the experiments at DACA would involve placing a victim in a pressure chamber, a mobile pressure chamber, just like mounted on a truck. Uh, that would reduce the interior atmosphere to simulate very high altitudes and see how far you could go without passing out and quickly changing the pressure to simulate how a pilot would experience free fall from a very high altitude so they're doing this to find better ways of protecting Luftwaffe pilots during the war Um, In regards to temperature, they would also do experiments regarding that victims would be exposed to extremely low temperatures and then reheated with various methods And this was to explore hypothermia as much as possible and see the limits of the human body here as well. And along with the pressure experiments, these experiments were really made to test the absolute limits of the human body. The reason why they did this uh, temperature experiment is because a lot of uh, Luftwaffe pilots got stuck in the Scandinavian mountains, for example, in Norway, or would uh, end up in the Arctic. And, you know, it's good to know how what, what best methods there are to heat up pilots and how cold the pilot can really survive So they can predict with weather and things like that So all of these things are done for the Air Force basically. They had various methods for reheating uh, These victims they could be done with hot food and drink which sounds nice, but they could also be immersed in uh, boiling water So again, we're talking really gruesome experiments here. So these um, horrifying experiments happened during the Second World War. But after the war, Hubertus Strugold, as as was his name, was taken on by the Allies as part of Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip was an operation to take German scientists and officers and high-ranking politicians and take them to the U.S. or to sometimes the U.K. but mostly to the U.S. to use their science and their knowledge to fight the Soviets. When it comes to space rocketry, for example, a lot of scientists were being taken in from from Germany because they worked with the V two rockets. Uh, Werner von Braun, for example, was one of the one of the people who like designed German rockets and eventually became head of NASA, even though he was a full fledged Nazi and used slave labor to build those rockets. But yeah, and as part of Operation Paperclip, a lot of these scientists were basically forgiven for their crimes or their crimes were hidden away. Which is why it's kind of hard to know if Hubertus actually did human experimentation or not, because a lot of the files are kept under wraps. And he was taken in to work with the U.S. regarding space travel, and you can see why, because he had done a lot of science regarding pressure, atmosphere, and temperature. All things you need to know if you're going to go into the vacuum of space. So Strughold was taken in by the allies from Germany. But there were also other experiments and scientists that were being incorporated into the American space program that didn't come from Germany but came from Japan. Japanese scientists working for the highly secretive entity known as Unit 731 during the second world war they had done their own human experimentation in China uh, because there can't be any like normal experimentation being taken in here. They all have to be horrifying. They would put people in huge centrifuges to measure the limits of g-forces on humans. They would put people into sealed rooms and make it into a vacuum to see the limits of the human body on that. And same in the reverse, using extremely high pressure, so very similar to what Strughold did, that they would put people in absolute vacuums. And they would also expose people to high levels of radiation, x-rays to be specific, to test all manner of things, To when when sickness would kick in, the acceptable level of radiation before death, various treatments. And they also kept meticulous notes, data, samples. Um, But that also poses an ethical question. Because obviously these crimes are crimes against humanity, and they're extraordinarily unethical. But how do we, as like removed from, from the unethical actions, viewed the data that they produced, as in like modern day scientists, or yeah, even the, scientists during the time. Mm,
0: yeah, um, like do you still use the data? Yeah, exactly. Considering that it was obtained through human experimentation. Mm-hmm.
1: And in modern scientific terms, in very like strict terms, much of the data that was being produced has been judged as having very like poor methodology, not really being good science. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say that it doesn't really matter that it's unethical, it's just bad science. Mm-hmm. Human experimentation doesn't really produce that good science, because it's hard to standardize, it's hard to repeat, it's bad science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are some people who also say that it could be good science, there are things that we can learn from it, but that using that data would sort of endorse human experimentation, or say that it could be useful, and therefore we shouldn't do it anyway. Like, mm-hmm. we should try to repeat those experiments in an ethical Way and use that data. And then there is an then there's a third like view on this, which is that it is unethical to not use that data. Because if if we can learn something from it, then it could be used to save lives. We could we could better society from using this data. Even though it was obtained through horrible means, we we could we could use it. And that this especially comes with in terms of hypothermia, right? Because hypothermia experiments were extraordinarily unethical. But a lot of the science the Nazis produced has been used in modern-day studies around hypothermia and reheating, uh, and has actually saved lives. So it's a bit, it's a huge gray area here. Mm. And that is a whole other episode. And the reason why I mention this is because it is an ongoing debate, even today. But this was not really a debate after the Second World War. It was a debate among scientists, right? Like, in public, but in secret. Both American and Soviet uh, governments and scientists were desperate to get this science, to get this data, to get these notes. After the war was over, many of these scientists were absorbed into their respective space program. And in the case of Unit 731, many of the people who committed these crimes were given full immunity in exchange for surrendering all of their information that they had obtained. And that includes the people who were in charge of 731, the people who worked for 731, the people who had like worked tangentially with 731. And they were all given full immunity by the Americans, several hundred people by the way. But these scientists were very willing in giving up this information, even going so far as to guiding American scientists to various temples across Japan, where they had hidden over 15,000 microscope slides they had taken from uh, their victims, along with like notes and meticulous data. So all of this evidence and all of this data was taken to the US to really lay the foundation of, of their space medicine program. Uh, The term space medicine, which is uh, what we're talking about here, was actually coined by Hubert Strughold, that, that Nazi that I mentioned earlier, while he was working for the Americans on their space program. And from here on out I'm mostly going to talk about the American space program. There are a lot of similarities between the Soviet and the American space programs, but the American space program is the one that everyone knows about, basically, at least most people who listen to this podcast. We, probably, and like Western history, people talk about like Neil Armstrong, NASA, and that stuff. Which is unfortunate, because in my opinion, the Soviets won the space race. That's just a a history fact that I'm dropping on you now.
0: Our American audience is not going to like this.
1: Well, it's too bad. Okay, first satellite, first man in space, first woman in space, first animal in space, first orbital flight, first probe to impact the moon, first images from the moon's far side, first multi-person crew in space... First space station?
0: I mean, yeah, but... First (laughs) space
1: rover? First probe to land on Mars? Sorry, anyway. (laughs) And another reason why I want to talk about the American space program is because the Soviet one is a bit more heavily classified than the American counterpart. They kept their secrets a bit tighter. So it's a bit harder to trace the progress there. So, you know, bear with me here. But again, most of the things I'm going to say apply to both. So Hubertus, who I mentioned, became instrumental in a thing called Project Mercury, which was the initial American like, project to put a person into space. And he became instrumental in designing the pressure suits that astronauts would wear and life support system for the Mercury ship. He, he was basically in charge of that project.
0: So when did Project Mercury start?
1: That's a good question, I don't have that in my notes. That would be something in the 50s, but I do mention something that came before that, and that's because the Project Mercury was put under NASA. That's NASA's first attempt to put a person into space. But the US Air Force had right before that started their Man in Space concept, or Man in Space First project, because their idea was that they wanted to be the Soviet Union. Let me just quickly look up when Project Mercury began. I didn't- pretend. Be right back. <laughs> So Project Mercury started in 1958 and ran until 1963, and there are other projects after that. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the Apollo program is probably what most people know about, because that's what took people to the moon. And they're all named after, like, gods and goddesses, basically. And it is during Project Mercury where a lot of the health issues are being sorted out, because all of the other following space programs don't really do that much in regards to health. All of these programs are basically more innovations in, like, rocket technology, which is very interesting, but not for us. The Soviet version of this was...
0: It's very interesting, look it up yourself.
1: (laughs) It's very interesting, these rockets, but we don't care. We care about health. The Soviet version of this was called Project Vostok, uh, and they had to deal with the exact same issues, by the way. Using data from Operation Paperclip, NASA would begin to launch capsules into space, uh, featuring larger and larger animals. And this was to put theories to the test and make sure that anything could survive re-entry and space travel with proper life support.
0: So what animals did they send in space? Uh,
1: famously monkeys. Mm-hmm. But also uh, the Russians sent dogs. Yeah. Um, and, but they would also send flies. Oh. They would send... Uh, Do fa-
0: wait, okay. Did they send the flies in human-sized rockets, or did they send them in tiny fly-sized no, rockets? No, they, they
1: sent them in human-sized rockets, but they, like, put, they put a lot of, like, containers in there instead of astronauts uh-huh. featuring, uh, like, various types of animals to see if they could survive in space.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you imagine, like, just building, like, a tiny, tiny just rocket? a firework for, rocket? For, like, for two flies in tiny spacesuits. In tiny spacesuits!
1: <laughs> I love that.
0: I know. It's okay. So That's...
1: Fly to Houston. We have a problem. Um, That's so stupid. <laughs> and the reason why they wanted to do this was because while they had like pretty solid theories about how what space was, and they were right to for the for the for a vast extent of what they thought, they you know they weren't sure. Mm-hmm. Like if you if if you've never sent anything into space before, you have no idea. Yeah. Like maybe there's some hidden radiation that you can only detect in space that instantly kills anything. Yeah. Um, but they began sending larger and larger things up. They uh, fine-tuned their life support to, like, match how much a person is consuming in terms of oxygen. Eventually, they began... They, they started filling the uh, the capsule with 100% oxygen atmospheres, but at a lower pressure. So mm-hmm. that the same amount of oxygen is still, like, being pushed into the blood by the pressure of the atmosphere. It's just, like, very intense. Which is a really smart way to sort of, like, get around the the weird air composition that Earth has. With yeah. a bunch of nitrogen and, like... The, like we, don't worry about that, just 100% oxygen, send into to space, it's fine. Sounds good, until something catches on fire, <laughs> mm. and mm. which unfortunately has happened sometimes. They also uh, discovered that the best angle for an astronaut to be launched at was as an angle backward, perpendicular to the bigger blood vessels, as if laying down. That's why in movies, they like lay lay down in the rocket and they get shot off. It causes the least amount of like damage and stress yeah, to yeah, blood yeah, vessels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and this was partially uh, based on centrifuge experiments by Unit 731 because they they had tested various positions of of victims, and further confirmed by American scientists, who would experiment a bit more ethically. Uh, I say a bit more ethically, uh, when we're talking about animal ethics today, probably not super ethical. The design philosophy of of the space travel age at this time was that because we didn't really know anything about how space worked, early astronauts of this era would just follow along as an observer and a passenger. They wouldn't really control the the spacecraft that they were in. So Yuri Gagarin, for example, the first person uh, ever in space, Russian. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Russian, actually, but it was Soviet. So Yuri Gagarin would basically be uh, a passenger on this flight. He wouldn't really control the spacecraft because while even though they knew that animals and people could survive in space, they didn't really know like if it had an effect on their ability to... To do stuff. Mm-hmm. Microgravity makes things hard to just move around. They didn't really know, but as they figured out that like Yuri was fine, early American astronauts were fine, they started giving more and more control over the spacecraft to astronauts, which is kind of important because the more the more advanced stuff you want to do in space, it's better if you have someone up there actually doing it. And so far, so good. Making a rocket safe for human is one thing, but they also wanted to do spacewalks and of course eventually go to the moon. Early flights like early suborbital flights where you don't really make a full orbit or a full orbital flight's only really lasted for a few hours. Yuri Gagarin wasn't up there for a very long amount of time. But if you want to go to the moon, that takes several days, which means you have to think about things like recycling your air better. You need to think about recycling your water going to the bathroom, which is what people do, and also just shedding skin, which is something that people do because everything is contained on the spacecraft. You can't vent.
0: You can't just crack a window?
1: You can't crack a window, no. And you also have to think about things like long-term effects of space travel, like long-term effects of microgravity and radiation, right? Because like, you just being up there for a little bit is fine, but long, longer is harder. And a lot of these problems were fixed with very cheap, short-term solutions. Food became, like, they gave, they gave astronauts, like, poor-tasting paste, basically, because that's easy to transport. Bathrooms is basically just a hole, sucking hole, and they would basically just replace oxygen more than recycle it. They could recycle it, but oftentimes they would just like replace oxygen in the air. Sometimes they would scrub CO2 using canisters of lithium hydroxide, but that's also like a very brute force solution to dealing with carbon dioxide. For the most part, people in charge would focus primarily on health concerns that would impact the viability of the mission with long-term or other concerns being much less priority. So they could have done like better water recycling and better air recycling, for example, but that would have added weight to the capsule, which would have made the mission to go to the moon and go into space harder.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big concern also with space travel, just like the mm-hmm. weight requirements, yeah, or yeah the yeah. the weight limits. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Like every every single kilogram counts because you have to. That you have every for every kilogram you add to the capsule, you have to. I have you have to add. I think it's only like two and a half kilograms of fuel. Mm-hmm which adds up quick. (laughs) I think it's even more than that actually but I don't remember. Using this as a baseline philosophy they would start analyzing astronauts for all sorts of health issues and start to correct for future flights more and more, which meant that astronauts would go through measurements in height and of their limbs both before and after flights. They would test their endocrine system, electrolytes, fluid volume, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal and neurovestibular assessments these are words that i have never been forced to say in my academic life and they would also do hematological and biochemical analyses a lot of analytics basically also in-flight heart rate and ekg telemetry were monitored and crews would take part in microbiological investigation radiation dosimetry nutritional and metabolic studies (sighs) (laughs) basically every single thing like astronauts would spend a little time in space and then they would spend like a month being like mm-hmm. prodded by mm. by doctors being like how okay how how fucked up are you now
0: yeah i mean going going to space is really dangerous and it has like so so many health effects, mm-hmm. which I'm gonna go into. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so these these like before and after tests are super important because you mm. need to say to see like is the is this person healthy enough to go into space? You know, if this person has like a heart condition, well, maybe they shouldn't go to space. Yeah. So all of these things are really important to see. Also because like there's so many long-term consequences of going to space, too. Like, when you're in space, yeah, that's one thing, but then mm-hmm. you come back to Earth, and, like, th- that can affect you for life, yeah, you know? Yeah,
1: they, they still check up on science yeah, the, on, on, astronauts on astronauts that are, like, old at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, they still give them, like, yearly checkups just mm-hmm. to see if, if something weird space-related happened. Or not. Yeah, or mm-hmm. just
0: because they need, like, health support after coming mm-hmm. back from space.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I know that fairly recently they, they did a test where two twins were both astronauts and they sent one into the space station for a long time and the other one stayed on Earth just so they could do a twin study of space travel. And that's cause like, we still don't really know a lot about how space affects the body for a long time. We've only been up there for a few years. Yeah. Anyway, all of this that I mentioned so far would culminate in the moon landing in 1969. When all of the knowledge that the U.S. space program had accumulated within their design philosophy was put to the test. And because they weren't taking many risks with such monumental tasks, a lot of the technology and solutions to health issues that, that they had had all been solved in earlier Mercury missions and previous Apollo missions. There were a few technologies that were like a bit new in mm. the Apollo program, but like when they landed on the moon itself, they were like, we know everything how this works. We're not going to innovate here, we're just going to land on the moon and be fine. Because, you know, if you crash on the moon, or if someone dies on the moon, that's game over. (laughs) Then you absolutely lose the space program. And that landing obviously turned out very good, uh, but just to really demonstrate how few risks they were willing to take, and just how little they knew about space and the moon, when they came back from, from the moon, all of the astronauts, like Buzz Aldrin and uh, Neil Armstrong, they were put into an isolation chamber to quarantine them for three weeks, just in case they had picked up any lunar pathogens, any moon plague. I, I told you the moon plague was there. And this, they actually, uh, so they had to actually put them in a mobile quarantine unit as soon as they got out of the spacecraft. Mm-hmm. And they stayed in there for three weeks. However... Buzz Aldrin, one of the astronauts who went to the moon, also said afterwards, a few years afterwards, Uh that this chamber had a hole in it (laughs) uh, that ants went in and out of for three weeks. So thank God that the moon plague didn't exist, Mm -hmm. because if it had existed, it would have gotten out. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, thank God moon plague didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And also thank God that, that the mission worked otherwise they would have been stuck up there. If any like individual part had failed, they would have either died in space or died on the moon. And there's actually a speech that was written in case of Buzz Aldrin and Neil just being stuck on the moon forever and dying there. Because there's you know they can't go up and get them. And I'm actually going to read that speech here to end my chapter. Please do. Uh, first, I have to find it. <laughs> so uh, so this speech uh, was written in case of in event of a moon disaster. <laughs> Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a mother earth that dare to send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, man looked at stars and saw their heroes in their constellations. In modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come will know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind.
0: I wonder if they got to... I mean, do you think they got to see it?
1: No, this. I think this speech was released uh, way after.
0: Hmm, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think I would like to, to read my own mm. death
1: speech. But they also knew when they went to the moon, that like... this could very well be a one-way mission.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they knew, but I think there's something very special about reading what somebody would write in case you died.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's dark. But they they made it back. The fact that no one's died on the moon is like a miracle, actually. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, let's uh, let's move on to some other health concerns. So that was a, a history of like early space medicine and like the history of space exploration from a medical point of view honestly not a ton (laughs) they figured that people can breathe and there's a bunch of nazis but now space travel has progressed to the point where we have like a space station and people are spending a lot of time in space so a lot of these like initial concerns aren't that important i mean they're still very important it's only air but there are now like more health concerns more Mm. long-term concerns and I think that's something that you're going to talk about.
0: Yeah. So you've given us a little overview of the history of space travel. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm interested in is how the human body acts in the space environment, like on on the in the long term. Mm. And so we're going to talk about the space environment and how some physical laws are different. And then we're going to talk about how those differences affect the human body. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that I want to talk about is microgravity. Um, So we all know about gravity and we know that it is the phenomenon by which all things with mass or energy are attracted to or gravitate towards each other. So on Earth, all bodies have a weight or a downward force of gravity proportional to their mass, which the Earth exerts on them. So in theory, if we were to move far away enough from the Earth's gravitational field, gravity would decrease sufficiently to give rise to a feeling of weightlessness. So importantly, microgravity is not the absence of gravity necessarily. It just means very low gravity.
1: Mm. A similar effect can be can be sustained by, like, being in orbit, not just from far away from Earth, like being like in, in the space station, for example, it's pretty close to Earth, but it's like going right. really quick around it, so it feels like microgravity as well. <laughs> so similar effect. There's yes. going to be some pedant on Twitter who's going to talk about it otherwise. I think. Yeah, like, actually, orbits are achieved <laughs> and are not far away from the su- su- surface gravity well of Earth. <laughs> so I just wanted to have. All right,
0: that. good. Good that you're covering the the because I'm that pedant. <laughs> you are the actually person. <laughs>
1: I'm that person. I would do that.
0: But yeah, so most of the immediate physiological effects of spaceflight are attributed to microgravity. So while the body can adapt to changes in the gravitational environment, these changes in the environment can still have pathological consequences and can lead to a decrease in the space traveler's fitness. So microgravity is like one of the main things that um, you need to think about when you design like a spacecraft, when you design spacesuits, when you know when you plan out yeah. um, a quick trip to space. A
1: quick trip. <laughs> Just to quick, space. you know, we can yeah. get away. Because it's like the one thing that's like constantly present always. It's just like you're not walking around and you're floating.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it, has, it just has a lot of effects mm-hmm. on the human body. So the first system that I want to talk about is the cardiovascular system. So on Earth, the cardiovascular system works against gravity to prevent blood from pooling in the legs. So when a space traveler enters an environment of decreased gravity, they immediately experience a redistribution of fluids from the legs to the upper body within seconds. Mm -hmm. And this is known as puffy face or bird legs (laughs) because it causes immediate facial swelling and a 10 to thirty percent decrease in leg circumference. Mm -hmm. The body usually returns to a normal fluid distribution within 12 hours, but astronauts often complain of nasal stuffiness and eye abnormalities usually caused by changed intracranial pressure. In addition to the redistribution of fluids, there is a reduction in blood volume, red blood cell quantity, and cardiac output, because the cardiovascular system doesn't need to counteract gravity. Mm. And this change doesn't cause limitations on space, but most astronauts experience heart palpitations and fainting when returning to Earth.
1: Because suddenly all the blood is going back to their feet. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you look at like videos from, from the space station, you can see that puffy face. Like, all of them look a little bit like...
0: Um, In addition to the changes in the cardiovascular system, the musculoskeletal system takes a fair amount of damage as well. So on Earth, the gravity exerts like loading forces on the muscles and the bones, but in space that's not the case. So in space, muscles atrophy in bones demineralize and decrease in density. And space crews usually have individually tailored exercise programs and access to a variety of aerobic and resistive exercises, which operate over a wide range of motions.
1: I know that that means that they can, that there are are real scientific things that they can do, but I'm just imagining like four astronauts doing aerobics.
0: Like eighties aerobics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, wearing wearing the, like, like the tights
1: arts, and like hyper color mm-hmm, disco mm-hmm. music playing.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I what need they a hero.
1: These? They, they might.
0: might. What if it is? They're just keeping it a secret because it's embarrassing. I mean, they're showing they showing all the cool all the cool shit, but it's, they're actually doing eighties aerobics.
1: I mean, if we, if we know anything from uh, the hit novel The Martian, it is that astronauts fucking love disco. <laughs> Good, good movie by the way. Good book too.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so there has been a meta-analysis of countermeasure exercises that just like s- try to um, to see what exercises were most effective at reducing muscle atrophy and in- bone demineralization. And there's no specific exercise that was fully successful. So unfortunately, this is still something that um, we're kind of struggling with. Mm. Like. If you go to space, you will lose muscle mass, you will lose bone density.
1: Like we can reduce the effect, but we can't like eliminate it. Yeah, not
0: quite yet. But here's something that I think you're gonna like. There's this one thing that they have that they give to astronauts in addition to making them do exercises, and it's called the skin suit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The skin suit.
0: Um, It applies- Made
1: made by Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Hannibal, noted, a, Hannibal, yeah Hannibal Lecter is a... Noted scientist Hannibal Lecter.
0: Hannibal Lecter is a honorary member of mm. NASA.
1: Hello, Clutters. <laughs> You're in space, Clutters. In space now I can hear you scream, cladded.
0: Um. Okay, so they give them the skin suit. And what the skin suit does, it, it applies compressive axial loading. Axial just means along the axis, so along the length of the body. So the the, the point of this is to replicate the loading caused by terrestrial gravity. So it, like compresses them. Which so is a
1: really tight suit. Yeah, tight I skin mean, I, suit. Don't, I
0: don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know how it actually works. But yeah, it's just supposed. It's supposed to compress them like along the the length of the person. That's pretty body. cool. Yeah. So, I had no idea about that. So, it aims to counteract the stretching of the spine in space, which might be the cause of lower back pain experienced by around half of astronauts.
1: Um, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Imagine going to space and having the adventure of your life and you have back pain.
0: Yeah, because it stretches yeah. their spine, yeah. which sounds very uncomfortable.
1: They do become taller in space. Do they? Yeah. They well, become, I guess because they it stretches do. their spine, yeah, they do become like a few do. inches taller. That's a thing. And maybe, then they shrink when they come back to Earth.
0: Maybe that's why Jeff Bezos wants
1: to go. <laughs> <laughs> i this uh, this podcast does not stand Jeff Bezos. And this is how we get kicked off uh, some uh, podcast. Some, podcasts. Uh,
0: Google podcast. Google Pod- I, I don't
1: I don't are we on is there are we on Amazon podcast? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs>
0: we should know. <laughs> we should know.
1: <laughs> Jeff, if Jeff Bezos is a listener to this. This
0: he's not. Stop, if like, he nobody is, fucking nobody If he is. Why you always you can
1: you can ask for our forgiveness by paying us so much money.
0: (laughs) You're always like, if Trump is listening to this podcast, do you think Trump is listening to this? He might. (laughs) He's not. He might. We We can talk shit about Trump. He's not listening to this podcast. Anyway, the skin suit aims to contract the stretching of the spine in space, which might be the cause of lower back pain experienced by around half of astronauts in the early part of their missions. And um, the ability to prevent spine elongation in space Mm. might also help reduce the risk of post-flight injury to the spine's intervertebral discs, commonly known a herniation or slipped disc. Oh, God. Yeah, which astronauts are at greater risk of experiencing when they return to Earth.
1: Oh, that's oh yeah, am me a hernia.
0: And this is just one of the like long-term health risks that astronauts experience when they come to Earth. To like, say
1: though, it seems worth it like, if you go up to space. Like, I'd take a hernia.
0: I don't know, but, like wait until I get to the radiation. Like, the, mm. it's just like a lifelong, um, just a slew of health issues mm. that you get when you come back, and you're in space for like. I mean, I guess you could be there for a long time, but imagine going in space for like two days, and then you just come back and you get cancer like I don't know I know well, it I know doesn't work not, like that I know it's not that fast but I don't know it's I'm fine I'm fine on our sure. is all I'm saying okay so you know how I said that bones also demineralize mm-hmm. do you know what happens when bones lose minerals
1: they become weaker
0: they become weaker but um another thing that happens is because the the calcium and the other minerals they have to go somewhere
1: yeah right oh <laughs>
0: And what what happens when we when we um, need to get rid of minerals? How do they how do we actually get rid of minerals for urine? Oh, talking a, kidney stones? Yeah. When there is an excess of calcium and minerals in urine, kidney stones form.
1: Imagine getting one in space.
0: Yeah. So cause here's the thing, right? Like you can't go in for like emergency kidney stone extraction when mm-hmm. you're in space. Like, just imagine you're in space and a kidney stone gets stuck in your refra mm. and you can't get it out. You can't pee. It, it, it sucks. Um, but there are some measures that are currently being tested for, for efficiency in reducing the incidence of kidney stone related emergencies. So the first one is a procedure which harnesses ultrasound technology to reposition kidney stones oh. so it doesn't um it doesn't actually destroy kidney stones mm-hmm. but the thing is they only become problematic if they enter the urinary tract yeah and then you know get stuck yeah. because that's what causes debilitating pain and then and they also like obviously obstruct the urinary tract which uh causes kidney swelling and damage
1: yeah so you can just move it back in yeah and just put it in the storage right. for a little bit
0: yeah, so so this technology allows stones to be moved back into patients' kidneys, which is not ideal either.
1: But it's better than. Yeah,
0: yeah, but it allows astronauts to finish their missions before returning to Earth for medical attention. So, mm-hmm. thumbs up.
1: Mm-hmm. Kicking the can down the road, but still. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. Another system which can become affected by space travel is the ocular system, the eyes. After spending several months in microgravity, most astronauts return to Earth with optic disc edema, posterior globe flattening, and a hyperopic shift in visual acuity. This may be caused by the microgravity-induced buildup of cerebrospinal fluid in the orbit and ventricles of the brain. And artificial gravity may be a solution to the fluid buildup in the cranium. And there's a study being conducted currently and it's it's done by nasa in collaboration with the japan aerospace exploration agency and they're looking at ocular tissues of mice living in microgravity um, conditions and they're comparing it to mice living in a centrifugal unit that produces one g of artificial gravity so that's an equivalent of yeah. gravity the results indicate that the that the mice living in microgravity experience damage to the blood vessels um, and the, the ones that live in artificial gravity are getting less damage. Mm. So you know that's artificial gravity is a potential solution to that.
1: And that's something you see in science fiction a lot where they have this sort of like spinning mm-hmm. spinning spacecraft to simulate gravity
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, that's neat.
0: Yeah, it's neat. So, last thing I want to talk about on the topic of microgravity are the vestibular and sensory motor systems, which you also mentioned. So, those two are responsible for the sense of balance and motor coordination. The vestibular system consists of the two otolith organs in our inner ear, named the saccule and the utricle.
1: Beautiful names. Mm-hmm
0: and the structures of the membranous labyrinth contained within them. On entry to microgravity, the otolith organs suddenly lose gravity information, which significantly alters spatial orientation cues. Because, I don't know if you know this, but we are able to keep our balance, partly because we have gravity sensory input. Mm -hmm. So when suddenly there's no gravity anymore, like...
1: We become, like, uh, very disoriented. Disoriented,
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah, so that is something that astronauts experience, like, very quickly. They experience, like, space motion sickness and and disorientation as as the body gets used to the change of gravity. And um, what kind of sucks is, like, most or a lot of astronauts actually report disorientation even after they return to Earth. Mm. Um, And... Some strategies to help space travelers adapt to the change of gravity includes medication that alleviates motion sickness, ground-based programs that mimic spaceflight conditions, behavioral strategies like limiting the speed and amplitude of head movements during flight. But while these methods have been attempted, most of them are not yet mature. And mm-hmm. the, this pro- problem of like, um, like being disoriented and not having balance and being, being safe, like having space sickness that's still a problem that is very much like present, and we don't really know how to fix it yeah. yet. So that was microgravity. And then the next thing that I want to talk about is uh, the fact that space is a vacuum. So this means that space is devoid of matter, and specifically particles which contribute to atmospheric density and pressure. So space is not a perfect vacuum in the sense that there's still a couple hydrogen atoms per cubic meter, but it's, it's obviously it's a lot emptier than what we're used to. So, in the vacuum of space, gas exchange in the lungs continues as normal, but results in the removal of all gases, including oxygen, from the bloodstream. And this becomes a problem when deoxygenated blood reaches the brain, and because it results in a loss of consciousness. Obviously, yeah. you need oxygen for your brain to yeah. function. Another effect from the vacuum is called ebullism, which results from the formation of bubbles in body fluids due to reduced ambient pressure. Mm. So spacesuits provide stable internal pressure, but as they usually carry pure oxygen and no nitrogen, um, as it is on Earth, like yeah. we, we talked about this, yeah. um, they also require the wearer to breathe pure oxygen before entering the suit.
1: Oh yeah, because the because uh, yeah, because that's something that I mentioned earlier that like because they're breathing pure oxygen, it has to be in a lower pressure mm-hmm. so that they don't become over oxygenated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, and I get yeah, because it's like a cord of the pressure, and that that makes yeah yeah Knee. <laughs>
0: yeah and um I, d- I had no
1: idea like decompression sickness. that makes perfect sense that mm-hmm. you could get decompression signals going into a pressure suit that's dope as shit
0: yeah um and then radiation is the last thing which is actually i think the area of space travel that we know the least about and that can carry the like, most dangerous health risks so, the Earth's atmosphere largely absorbs ultraviolet radiation from the Sun. So, actually, most UV radiation never even reaches the Earth's su- surface. Yeah. However, in space, um, there's you know if you're past the atmosphere, that means that you're fully exposed to the UV radiation. And that means that like, if you're unprotected, you would suffer sunburn from UV radiation within seconds and yeah. you'd be gone. Space traveler suits are usually made with special fabric, which blocks UV rays and um, aircrafts are also shielded like they have special shielding which blocks radiation as well but higher energy ionizing radiation in cosmic rays can still penetrate shielding in astronauts bodies which can have like severe health complications yeah. so damaging radiation of this type can cause radiation sickness mutated dna damage brain cells and contribute to cancer it also increases the risk of early onset cataracts and may increase the likelihood of acquiring viral and bacterial infections due to immune system suppression. Mm.
1: And I think uh, you know, a lot of these radiations are, you know, as you said, like UV radiation is blocked by the atmosphere, but there's also like m- a lot of cosmic rays mm-hmm. that are blocked by like the magnetosphere of mm-hmm, Earth mm-hmm. That, are, that we that we don't have to deal with at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't even reach the atmosphere because mm-hmm. we have like this weird bowel shield. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to mention too, because like the, the space station, for example, is like in very low, or it's in what's called low Earth orbit, so it's still within the magnetosphere of Earth, even though it's outside the atmosphere. Yeah. So this isn't, you know, it's 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 still a, it's still a problem. They're still exposed to way more radiation than people are on Earth, um, but it's not even close to the amount of radiation that they would have if they were to go into deep space. Yeah. But like when they went to the Moon, for example, I didn't mention this earlier. They were exposed to a ton of radiation, but because it's a short mission. The risk was seen as acceptable mm-hmm. uh, because you know radiation accumulates.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like that's one of the I was looking into like measures that we have to reduce the you know the health risks. And I mean, like one of the best things we've got is just like reduce time of exposure. Just, just don't just be don't, out there just don't for don't be out, Yeah, just don't be out there for too long Cause, like. Yeah, like you said, like we know about UV, we know about a few other types, but there's a lot of radiation types that we don't really know how it affects the human body. We don't mm. really know how to uh, We don't know how counteract. strong they are in
1: like, the space. Yeah. yeah,
0: so right now we're just like quick in and out.
1: <laughs> five-minute adventure, it's fine.
0: Yeah, um, Yeah. So, so this is a long-term goal for space researchers, like identifying effective countermeasures and really studying how radiation affects the yeah. human body.
1: Yeah, I have um, a little bit about that uh, coming up too.
0: Yeah, me too. Nice. (laughs) Um, And then lastly, just some other health complications or like things to keep in mind when we talk about like space medicine. Because right now I've I've sort of talked about microgravity, I've talked about radiation, I've talked about uh, vacuum. But now I'm going to talk about some other things that are kind of caused by other things or they're kind of caused by everything at once. So the first thing is the decreased immune system that occurs due to just constant stressors that are in space like microgravity cosmic radiation and the increase in corticosteroids so the weakened immune system increases susceptibility to disease and infectious pathogens for example pathogens that are dormant that individuals are harboring or microorganisms in their surrounding because i don't know if you know but like you can just you just have like pathogens that are just like are not active and then as soon as your immune system goes down those bitches are like they're out sorry i shouldn't say Like
1: like moon play <laughs> yeah, you, like, you you can beat that.
0: I can I can, I can beat that. That's actually
1: um, one of the reasons why astronauts are in quarantine before they go into space. Mm, just right, right. so so that, so, that, so they like, don't catch yeah. Yeah, so they can go so they can like if they're gonna be sick, they can be sick before they go to space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and so that they don't like pick up anything else in yeah. real ex- a real as sterile environment as possible.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um the sterility is important too because if there's you know, just like bacteria that wouldn't otherwise affect you, mm. like just on surfaces that can actually make you very, very sick once you're in space and like your immune system is down. So microorganisms is one concern, but the... So a healthy immune system is also vital for protection against cancer. Mm-hmm. It helps with tissue repair and wound healing. So the level of immune suppression depends on the length of the space trip. Um And in the case of longer durations, the immunosuppression may, may be irreversible. Oh. Yeah, so this is kind of what I mean, like you know you you do the space trip but then coming back you have all of these health issues that mm-hmm. you're dealing with and like imagine you're exposed to radiation which damages cells and you know it puts you at risk for cancer and also your immune system is affected mm-hmm. um so your body can't properly identify can't destroy those cancer cells yeah. in time so it, it just um, it really puts you in a very bad position
1: yeah that's that's messed up i mean i know that they're they're still doing like long-term studies to astronauts to so see mm-hmm. all, like what they can do. Uh, they keep breaking records mm-hmm. like all the time. Like this person's been in space for over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm guessing that they're like they are overcoming some risks slowly and sure. surely. Sure, sure. But it's still messed up that like yeah. Even even in the safe environment of the International Space Station mm-hmm. uh, compared to deep space, mm-hmm. it still does this. Yeah. down.
0: And. Um... And there has been a lot of work done to the goal of developing measures that alleviate immune dysfunction. Unfortunately, most were found inadequate or presented adverse responses. So for example, one measure has been the use of immunomodulatory agents and neurohormonal regulation, but they are risky in that they may negatively affect other human systems or exhibit toxicity. So we're still working on it. Next one that I wanted to mention, I kind of mentioned it a little bit, but the compression sickness. So it's uh, it's caused by the evolution of nitrogen gas from tissue or body fluid when a person is exposed to reduced ambient pressure. So it basically the nitrogen gas inside of you basically bubbles up to the surface because there's no nitrogen around you, right? So it it can it can lead to like vessel rupture inside you, mm-hmm. which is very dangerous. Um, And symptoms can range from joint pain to incapacitating neurological effects, including confusion, motor incoordination, and loss of consciousness. In order to decrease the risk of decompression sickness, astronauts breathe 100% oxygen to offload the body's nitrogen stores. And also do something called in-suit light exercise, (laughs) which I think is a fancy word for aerobics. (laughs) yeah um no I'm for kidding. disco robbers yeah so so what they do is they wear oxygen masks and exercise lightly in a spacesuit, which gives their body the opportunity to get used to the pressure inside the suit and also offload the nitrogen stores mm. so the you know they get rid of all the, the nitrogen before they actually go into the low pressure um environment Smart. Smart. last thing i want to talk about is sleep disorders. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, compared to everything else that we've talked about, it's, um, it may seem a bit insignificant, but it's part of the larger topic of like mental health and like psychological well being. Can yeah. I
1: tell you a fun story speaking of psychological things before you're going to sleep disorders probably? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, I want to tell you a quick, very quick story about Space Lab 4. This is not part of the script. is just a, it's a story that I'm telling you. Space Lab was uh, one of the early space stations mm-hmm. that, the, that the US had. And uh, for um, Space Lab 4 specifically is the mission, the fourth mission to Space Lab. And the crew were worked really hard because they were expected to basically, they were up there to do science, right? That's, that's what they do. And it's a very like time intensive mission to be in space. Um, and NASA was pushing them very hard, being mm. like, you need to do this, you need to do that, mm. you need to do that. You don't sleep too much, I'll take a breaks. Um, Yeah,
0: yeah, because that's the other thing, like, mm, being in space, it's such hard work. Yeah, yeah. you You are, there's so, such high expectations, it's so stressful, and, um, yeah, I mean, it can't be easy. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, but but this means that, like, eventually, uh, the crew got so tired of NASA that they shut off communications with NASA entirely, just cut off, just so they could take a nap. (laughs) Wow. um, Which you're not supposed to do, because you're in space. Yeah, yeah. Just shut off communications for a little, for a little bit. Hung up on NASA. Um, for a whole orbit, they didn't they didn't do that, uh, because they were getting fatigued, they were being mm. behind on work, so um, they decided that to catch up, they only needed one crew member for for a daily briefing instead of all three, mm-hmm. and they they started like changing up their entire work setup mm, to, mm. to better be more psychologically prepared for it. Yeah, good And NASA me. just stressed them out so much that they were like, no, off. Strike in space, and that is the story of the first strike in space. Hmm. None of them ever flew again, <laughs> because of course not. You you went against NASA, but it's still like a fun story. Yeah. And after this mission, they actually that that's when they started changing, like they reduced the workload for astronauts yeah. and started thinking more about sleep disorders. That's why I thought about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. And honestly, I think it's very. Um, I mean, I know that. Okay, like. I, I understand why there's a lot of pressure on astronauts to do their work very quickly. It is in everybody's interest for them to be in space for as short as possible. Like yeah. both in terms of um, like how... like Obviously, it's very expensive to keep them in space for so long, but it's also like detrimental. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Detrimental for their health. But I also feel like not letting them sleep and putting them under so much stress, surely, mm. that also affects their their performance. Yeah. Um, and you, you also can't really...
1: It's not ideal for them to be stressed out all To be
0: stressed out and yeah. make mistakes. So, and that's,
1: that's also why they, they started changing things around. Because yeah. the philosophy they had before this was that, you know, if you go into space, you have a lot of work to do and you, you're not going to be up there for a long time. Yeah. But they, they started realizing that they actually need to make them a bit comfortable up there mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. they're going to be able to do their work properly.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, so let me, let me just get yeah. through the sleep disorder super quick. Um, So sleep disorders are very common among astronauts, and they can obviously be very detrimental to to both their physical and their mental health, but also their performance. Gotta think about the performance. So sleep duration and quality can be adversely affected by microgravity, by isolation, by uncomfortable ambient temperatures and noise levels, as well as the, the lack of circadian cues, such as light cycles. And in order to prevent sleep disorders, several interventions exist, including sleep medications, including melatonin and certain sedatives, and other interventions include light therapy and psychological support. Mm. Do you think they have, like, therapy sessions with (laughs) their therapist on Earth? Oh, 100%. (laughs) Really? No, they
1: for sure do. They do. have, have, like, therapists that they talk to. Really? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I knew... I know that some of them, like, don't need them, but they're, Mm -hmm. like, available in case they need
0: them. That's really cool. Do you think it's, like, an in-house NASA therapist? Yeah.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Huh? They 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 hire like people to make sure that they're on their like mental tip top. Yeah, well um, I'm
0: sure, but I wonder what they talk about. It's
1: how how they're feeling. That's also why they that's also why they 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 started allowing that astronauts to like bring personal items for a mm-hmm. You may have seen like I think Chris Hadfield brought a guitar mm-hmm. and okay. Sung like songs in space. Like these I things somebody... increase morale, right? I not saw... just sleep.
0: I but... saw a picture with somebody holding a huge bag of weed.
1: <laughs> that's not true. Yeah. No one's brought weed to space. What are they gonna do? They can't light a fire to smoke weed. That's true. <laughs> They're in space!
0: Can they use, um... They
1: can't, they can't even eat bread. They have bread. They have to have taco. Why? Uh, they can't have bread because bread crumbs. It gets into the electronics. So they have to have taco, soft taco shells because it doesn't crumble. Oh, that's true. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we've talked about the physics of space a little bit, and mm-hmm. we've also talked about how the human body is affected by these different space conditions. Out of everything that we've talked about, mm-hmm. what is something that is really preventing us from exploring space further?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, the main thing is probably going to be radiation, mm. right, like we mentioned a little bit. Astronauts on the International Space Station today are already exposed to 10 times the radiation we are on Earth. And that's despite being inside the magnetosphere. And going to the moon, as I mentioned earlier, meant leaving the shield. But just as with radiation on Earth, the harmful effect is cumulative. And for a mission that only lasts a few days or weeks, that's okay. But going to Mars, for example, which I think is like the next like, big leap mm. in human exploration. Obviously, we're sending probes everywhere at this point. We're sending rovers mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, but astronauts... want to go to space, people want to go to space, Uh, or into deep space. And that means having to be in space for months or years. And that radiation builds up. And I think so far, NASA hasn't really found a good way to deal with that. They're recommending like heavy shielding for future spaceships and anti-radiation medication for astronauts, which is very much like a not great way to to deal with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and another thing that needs to be considered is that um, research on the effects of space, right? Because it's not just radiation. Like radiation is, does not exist in a vacuum, all of yeah. this. But <laughs> well. so
1: there's
0: a there's exposure to different space radiation particles, but it's also combined exposure of that with other space factors like microgravity, weightlessness, yeah. and prolonged hypoxia. So you also have to think about how radiation is is affected by the other factors that um are different in yeah. space and there on earth so there's a yeah. lot of like research that needs to be done here
1: mm. not only is the radiation stronger in space but it also hits harder
0: yeah and it hits different
1: yeah it's different <laughs> it just hits different space radiation hits different um but that and that's like the the big concern about like traveling in mm-hmm. space further steps along that mean going to mars for example and when people talk about going to mars a lot of people want to make a colony on mars uh, or mo- want to make trips to Mars a bit easier, like if you can go there and take water there so you don't have to bring it all the way back, or if you can go to Mars and make fuel there, for example. And a lot of these things are, are possible, technically, for, with science that we have today, but making people survive on Mars mm-hmm. during the time is also difficult. And that's because of all of the old problems that we talked about before, food, water, radiation, etc., etc., etc. And we don't really have like a good long-term solution for these things. People talk about, like, farming on Mars. Can't do that. Won't work.
0: What are you going to farm? Rocks? Well, (laughs) well,
1: you can farm because there is dirt. Mm -hmm. There is, like, they do have earth. Uh, But the dirt on Mars is very toxic because Mm -hmm. of a type of salt called a percolate. So these salts uh, can cause thyroid inhibition, lung toxicity, and aplastic anemia. And it's not generally something that you want to be in contact with Mm. at all, which... Astronauts are mostly gonna be <laughs> if they're if they're gonna like walk around on Mars. Uh, it's not great. The moon, moon dust, not even close as bad as this. Also, air uh, needs to needs to be cleaned, which is. Uh, can be sort of easy to solve now, but it takes a lot of chemicals to, to clean the air. Not a long-term solution, because you have to bring all those chemicals to Mars and all the way back, and you can make them when you're there, so it's gonna run out. But a recent mission looked into uh, on how to maybe do that more sustainably with a research project called MOXI, which stands for Mars Oxygen In-Situ Research Utilization Experiment, that tries to make breathable air from the Mars atmosphere. And if that works, then you know suddenly air doesn't become an, an issue on mars anymore
0: what is the mars atmosphere composed of uh,
1: i think it's a lot of carbon dioxide mm. like a significant amount of carbon dioxide it makes something like, for the farming then yeah but again the the perchlorates make it so basically nothing can grow in that earth do you, you know could what? clean the dirt there are some there are some studies that are looking into if you can clean mars dirt well enough so that mm-hmm. things could grow in it there mm-hmm. are botanists on Mars uh, not on Mars but in NASA that are working on like they're simulating Mars soil mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. and trying to grow stuff in it and they have seen some limited success but the food that they produce is also often very salty and yeah, which right. you can't eat yeah, yeah so you have to clean this soil basically to the level of earth soil mm-hmm. and then introduce microbes that make, that make the dirt like mm-hmm. friendly for things to want to grow in it and then you couldn't check. So there's a lot of steps that's, to make this. But that's dirt so interesting, floral. though. That's really cool. Mm. The uh, the alter the solution that like a lot of people talk about now is just bringing soil with them. But that adds like a lot of weight and a lot of volume. Yeah, and uh, it's, and it's and not really it's a, practical. And
0: it's a- Finite resources. Yeah. So, ideally, you would create a technology that allows you to clean the soil, clean the air on yeah. Mars already. Exactly. That's really cool.
1: And the same thing is true with the water, too. A lot of water on Mars mm-hmm. is also uh, tainted with perchlorates, <laughs> um, which is why sometimes we've been able to see via, via satellites, we've seen liquid water on the surface of Mars, which mm-hmm. isn't possible because it's too cold. Mm-hmm. But because of all these perchlorates, it lowers the freezing temperature yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but it's not drinkable. It and it can't be used for to hydrate, it can't be used like Was
0: that. the temperature on Mars like? Cold. Well, like, how cold?
1: I don't know how cold, but it's very cold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, can I look it up super quick? Yeah, I'll look it up super quick. Temperatures on Mars average about minus 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, okay, what is that in?
1: <laughs> what is, it, <laughs> what is what, that? What's that in non American C- units?
0: Celsius. Minus 60 degrees Celsius. So that's like Siberia.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really cold. Siberia in the winter. Yeah. Right not ideal. Not, not ideal. ideal.
0: And, and then in the winter, near the poles, temperatures can get down to minus 125 degrees. Yeah, Celsius. but
1: it's in, actually the water in the poles that's, like, good for us, because mm-hmm. that's probably not as tainted with perchlorate, so it's more, probably cleaner, and that water we may be able to use to drink, or to turn into fuel. And there are some experiments that are also talking about using this perchlorate to make oxygen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if, if the mox experiment doesn't really work out, then maybe we can make oxygen out of the salt. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. But it turns out that Mars is not a place you want to live in. <laughs> it's not made for us. It's, well, a very, it's, a, it's an inhospitable waste. Okay,
0: there. listen. You don't want to, but maybe we might have to.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> this place. Well, okay. Even, it's it's even, time of even, recording. Even, listen, even an apocalyptically bad Earth is better than Mars. Mm. Mars, we can't live there. Mm. We, we we have we have a much easier time living in, on Antarctica than we have a time living on, yeah, on Mars. That's and fair. we can barely live there. Mm. That's fair. Anyway, a lot of these issues um, are regarding living on other planets. So, and that's like the big issue right now. But the main issue is radiation, like going there. Mm. Like, mm. Yeah, because once we figure out the radiation part... We can sort of jury-rig everything else. We can bring soil, we can bring water, we can bring fuel. Like, we can just brute force the travel, but we can't brute force the radiation That's because true. that will penetrate the ship and kill or at least severely damage astronauts that go there. So we don't want that. Mm-hmm. This is something that, like, no one has fixed yet. Yeah. yeah but, but Elon think- Musk... <laughs> You um, haven't fixed it either. But SpaceX asked, oh, I'm gonna go to Mars in 2013. No, you won't. You didn't, did you? Because you haven't solved the radiation problem.
0: Yeah, but there is currently a lot of research specifically focusing on reducing the, the effects of radiation on the human body. So I think this is like the main interest on space travel research.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely the focus, yeah. Yeah, it's a big focus. And that, that's probably the, that's, that's what we're concerned about in the future. Very nice. So all of this space travel what good has it done for us? <laughs> all this money we're wasting on going to space. What what good is it? Is, yes. it? is it a waste of money? You
0: know, this is a, it's a good it's a good question to ask. Interestingly, the research that we've performed to allow people to survive in space actually have a lot of applications. For, uh, for Earth as well. Mm. An example of that is the study of bone loss. The early Skylab flights and the short duration missions of Gemini and Apollo led to the discovery of densitometry techniques, which are now widely used in clinical settings on Earth. So these densitometry techniques are meant to estimate bone mineral by using absorptiometric techniques. These findings may be important for disuse-related bone changes on Earth, such as amputation, lower leg fractures, or ligament tears. Additionally, the spaceflight studies indicate also that an early pharmacologic intervention at the beginning of a disuse episode could be effective in preventing bone loss and might preserve bone integrity. Interesting. So yeah, like uh, like I mentioned before, the musculoskeletal system is one of like the first things that...
1: That yeets out, out of your body once <laughs> you go into space. Yeah, it's Your bones explode. like
0: we know for sure that bone density is going to go down, uh, muscle mass is going to go down. So there has been a lot of research on preventing that, which is, like I said, very applicable to, to Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Another area which space research has made major contributions to is the sensory motor and neurovestibular function. Research in this area has increased understanding of humans' remarkable capacity for adaptive plasticity. On Earth, humans have a lifetime of experience in neural development in the constant gravity field, and yet, when astronauts go to space they adjust to the missing gravity related orientation signals within days you know they do have a little bit of space uh, sickness they do feel a bit unbalanced but they do in the end adjust to it um and so aspects of this neuroplasticity have informed training programs to improve motor programs in clinical populations on earth
1: oh yeah basically by by trying to solve stuff for astronauts all of the things that we're solving for them are also being solved mm-hmm. for like related things here on earth
0: yeah, because people suffer from conditions related to the sensory, motor, and your vestibular function here yeah. too. Like maybe it's not related to lack of gravity necessarily, but yeah, like it gives
1: us insights. It in like gives us insights.
0: Yeah, it gives us insights into how the system functions and also how the body can adapt to like changes in the system mm. lastly i don't know if you know but they actually conduct biomedical research in space this mm. is something that they do in the space station yeah
1: they, it's a it's a it's a it's a big laboratory up there
0: and one area of research is biomedical research and it's very interesting because for example cells behave differently in space so cell growth is different in microgravity than on earth in the sense that cells grow in a better more 3d fashion that they do on earth because there isn't this gravitational pull downwards mm. so they're able to sort of grow more upwards and like sideways mm. um which allows scientists to study them better than on earth then the aging process is also different than space so cells age faster which allows scientists to study like just cell processes but also like pathologic processes mm. um like more just because cells have a quicker turn so you don't have to yeah. wait for weeks for cells to go through these processes. Interesting. Finally, experience with crystal growth in microgravity shows potential to yield much better results. In roughly 40 space investigations, close to 50% of the cases showed better protein crystals than any produced on Earth. And protein crystallization, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it has three major revenue generating applications. Structural biology and drug design bio-separations and controlled drug delivery so overall this might mean that the time to develop tests and design products drugs treatments and therapies may be shortened and human health benefits may be realized sooner
1: when you said crystal growth isn't better i really i literally thought that some astronauts were breaking bad
0: <laughs> they're just making we gotta money. cook jesse
1: in space oh my god it's faster
0: no it has it has applications in pharmacology
1: mm. Another thing that has occurred from from this that I also feel like I want to mention again because some pedantic person on Twitter is going to say it. Like I think like one of the most famous things that we kind of got to mention is that the uh, the um techno- some technology behind the uh, cat scan and MRI mm-hmm, scanners mm-hmm. are are based on technology that was developed so that we could take better better pictures of of space mm-hmm, and of and of Mars and the Moon, which uh, have then been like applied to to us here on Earth. Mm. And that's that you know that's also. Yeah, done. And there's, you know, there's countless of inventions that have been yeah, I mean, ap- applicable. Exactly.
0: And like even the things that I mentioned earlier, you know, like the things that we do to reduce the effects of microgravity, the effects of vacuum, like, yeah. you know, the kidney stones thing, like these things have been developed in order to like improve conditions for astronauts. Mm-hmm. But then they're just brought back to Earth yeah. and like applied in clinical settings on Earth. So that's space. <laughs> what was that supposed
1: to be? Was a space sound?
0: Is that you being yoinked into space? Yeah, space!
1: That's how a space travel works, yeah. You get yoinked into space.
0: <laughs> that's you being sucked into a black
1: hole. As long as I'm free from this yeah. earth. From this putrid hell. Mm. But yeah, that's 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 space health. Nazi origins, um, less shady uh, history after that, and then uh, some nice practical applications for us.
0: Yeah. So, I, I learned, thank learned I learned a lot. I have to say, I feel like every time we do an episode, I just develop this like newfound interest. I'm like, should I change careers? <laughs> should I become an astronaut? <laughs> should I become? A- you, should you should I become? You could biomedical research yeah. in space. Yeah,
1: there. Yeah, yeah. I
0: feel. I saw. So, I'm not gonna lie. I did look into
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> See, because you have a path for this. Historians are not invited to space.
0: <laughs> I feel like a lot of the people who perform biomedical research in space are very like first of all they know from early on that they're going to go like cuz cause, mm. cause it's such a like a long and arduous arduous process to like end up there um maybe i think it depends. i feel like you can't show up when you're like 35 and be like Maybe I should do research in space. Like, mm. do you know what I mean? I
1: also, I also think that you're probably going to have... I think you also need uh, a degree in something like engineering related. But also, I think uh, like 35, a lot of astronauts are... Like, they, they begin applications during that time. But I feel I like the they just is between, like I think the ages are between like 25 and 38. And that's the age that you can like apply to be an astronaut.
0: I just feel like because it's such a big like commitment and because you have to be so incredibly good to end up there, you kind of have to know... That that's what you want to do ever since you're like a kid. Maybe I'm maybe I'm I'm wrong, but um, I also saw that a lot of the people who um, perform medical research are also physicians, um, because I think that a very very important part of like, forming a team who's going to go to space is making sure that skills are very, like, well-balanced mm-hmm. and they complement each other. Yeah. That's so, why a
1: lot of them have two, two, uh, two PhDs. Yeah, exactly. So because they, they, the expertise is always there, even with a few, uh, like, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. Smart, light complement.
0: Yeah. So I don't think I will be going to space, but...
1: Um, well, if Jeff Bezos is going to space, which apparently he is, uh, and he can stay up there, maybe... Uh, I think there's
0: there's an important difference between me and Jeff Bezos in that I am not, uh, like, a fucking zillionaire.
1: Yeah, but I still think that he... I feel if he can go to space, then anyone can go to space.
0: No. Yes.
1: <laughs> I just think that we should, le- I just think we should leave him up there, and that we can take his money, and that we can go to space.
0: Mm-hmm um but
1: that's space that's space but hope you learned a lot dear listener
0: uh we hope you liked this episode if you did like it and you'd like to hear more you can visit our twitter account Ran by yours truly mm-hmm. at um, Pod. Mm-hmm.
1: If you want to hear the next episode now, you can do that on Patreon. There are a bunch of rewards. Uh, mm-hmm. You can
0: get a shout out, and you can, get a shout you can out. be in one episode ahead and you can see notes and you can do all sorts of cool yeah, things.
1: You can uh, t- give us comments directly on like early access episodes. Yeah,
0: it's all super cool, great community. Okay, thanks for listening to the episode. Um, thanks, bye.
1: Bye. <laughs> it's babies.